0: Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Christianity Today and Kairos Partnerships. Hey everyone, uh, it's Doug Moister here. I'm flying solo today, uh, but man, am I excited for the interview that we have ahead. Many of you have heard about Enneagram, taught about Enneagram, thought about Enneagram over the years, and we've gotten quite a few uh, comments and conversations with other pastors who said, man, I'd love to hear an episode geared around the Enneagram. And so we're really fortunate because we have a chance, I had a chance to sit down with Suzanne Stabile uh, and just pick her brain over the course of 45 minutes. So this is a bit of a longer interview. And so I'm just going to be quiet. You'll hear the bio. Uh, If you haven't heard of Suzanne Stabile, she she is one of the leading voices in in the Enneagram conversation today. Uh, But we hope you really enjoy this interview. Dan Stabil is a highly sought after speaker, teacher, and internationally recognized Enneagram master teacher who has taught thousands of people over the last 30 years. She's the author of The Path Between Us and the co author with Ian Morgan Cron of The Road Back to You. She is also the creator and host of the Enneagram Journey podcast. Along with her husband, Reverend Joseph Stabil, she is a co founder of Life in the Trinity Ministry a non non-denominational ministry committed to the spiritual growth and formation of adults. Their ministry home, the Micah Center, is located in Dallas, Texas, and they have many audio resources available, including the Enneagram Journey curriculum. She has spoken at hundreds of colleges, churches, and conferences across America, and also teaches in the Baylor healthcare system. She has taught at Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation, and has also taught along with Father Rohr to an international audience in Assisi, Italy. Please welcome our guest, Suzanne Stabil. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today on the Monday Morning Pastor. So glad to have you.
1: I'm so glad to be here on a Wednesday because I did Monday <laughs> morning with my pastor.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Very good. So... Uh, if, if you if, if anyone has read anything about Enneagram, your name has come up. Um, you've written some fantastic books uh, and I've just really appreciated so much of what you have done for pastors um over the life of and you know over your own ministry and your own calling. but tell us a bit about yourself and your unique calling
1: um all right I grew up in a small uh, town in the Panhandle of Texas. My dad was the town doc, and uh, my mom was a nurse and they adopted me at birth my dad delivered me and they just decided to keep me. Um, and, uh, it, it, it's a lovely thing to grow up in a safe container, like a small town where in the fifties and sixties, where I could make mistakes and be forgiven in real time and get a chance to clean things up. And where I was parented by lots of folks and, um i had parents who were both very smart and they had a lot of space for difference they traveled a lot and um took me with them some and uh that kind of widened my understanding of the world and how things are i went to smu as a freshman in college and got a chance to do some coaching which was what i wanted to do in a catholic high school but they also invited me to um kind of add to my sociology background and get some theology so that I could teach theology. And I did that for a while. I married the wrong person. Uh, A lot of people in the sixties did and uh, struggled through that, divorced. um, And then I married uh, the best human being on the planet
2: Mm.
1: who uh, had, uh, he and I had worked together. He was a Catholic priest. He went to seminary at uh, 13, almost 14, and uh, he was with the Vincentian Fathers until he was 40, and he left, and uh, then we had worked together, but we didn't date, or <clears throat> we weren't romantically involved until he left the priesthood, and I was a single mom with three kids, and um, I guess we uh, were already deeply in love with each other and just didn't know it. And we married, he adopted my three. We had a fourth. Um, He, to his surprise, became a pastor in the United Methodist Church where he's been for pastoring for 36 years. And uh, he's now retired. Uh, In the Methodist Church, you have to retire at 72, but he wasn't ready to stop. And he is uh, one of the associate pastors responsible for spiritual formation at First United Methodist Church, Dallas. And our children all went away to school and came home, and they're married, and we have nine grandchildren, so there are 19 of us. Uh, And we try really hard to be good to each other. We try to get together once a month. And I grew up in the Methodist Church. I was Catholic for 10 years. I kind of got absorbed into the Catholic Church when I was teaching theology in a Catholic high school. And um, Joe likes to tease me and say that I was Catholic just long enough to get him, but it really uh, actually wasn't about that. I'm very thankful for those years because uh, I don't I don't know that the Methodist Church will ever um, have the mystical understanding that Catholics do, and it's um, Mass for me is more holistic. Than most Protestant worship services, which I'll talk about a little bit maybe when we talk about my new book
0: yes yes, very good well thank you so much for sharing I, I yeah I I get the sense that um you know there are a lot of pastors who's listening you know we can't wait to hear you talk about the Enneagram and and your new book and and some of the things so can you give us sort of an overview of like how 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 you've seen the enneagram really work within your own life how you got into it and also um maybe a bit of what it might be for someone who this is their first time hearing this really complicated word
1: um all right um joe and i had been married eh, maybe maybe 3 4 years and um kind of didn't know what to do with our history. Um, Joe had become a Methodist pastor, but we had had some significant spiritual experiences in our work in the Catholic church. Uh, We worked together essentially doing what in the Protestant church we call revivals. Mm. Um, And we would go and teach in a church for a week. And we, our goal was um, Joe's in particular, I was, the assistant sort of, um, I was the lay person. Joe's goal was to introduce people to the reality of Vatican II. And we were modeling how lay persons and priests could work together and that we had different gifts, but each valuable gifts. And, um, during our time of working together, we just had some significant spiritual experiences and we didn't know what to do with those after Joe left the priesthood. and. We married. And so one day, Joe just called Father Richard Rohr and said, this is who I am. This is my background. Can my wife and I come see you in Albuquerque? And Richard said, sure. So um, it turns out Richard's three years older than Joe and Richard's Franciscan and Joe was Vincentian. But they both went to high school seminary, had formation for both of them, was very much alike. And they had uh, an awful lot in common. And uh, we spent a long afternoon with Richard, and he handed me a manuscript for an anagram book that he had written. And he said, "Hey, I I think you might find this interesting. Why don't you read it? And when we get together again, we'll talk about it." And it uh, it made every page made sense to me. Mm. So we met again three months later, and he said uh, after I talked to him about my response to his work. He said, you know, I I think you get this intuitively. And uh, I know that you lead retreats and that you teach adults. He said, I would encourage you to hold this and study it for five years before you talk about it. Mm. And I'd be happy to walk with you through your journey. And I said, okay. And you don't know me well yet, and pastors listening don't know me well yet, but, I, you know, if I like something, if I hold it for five minutes without talking about it, that's a thing. <laughs> so five years meant that I went really deep mm-hmm. and learned a lot. And I ended up kind of in a niche where there there isn't a lot, or wasn't 30 years ago, a lot of Enneagram teaching around the Enneagram and. Uh, You could learn a lot about the Enneagram um, from a spiritual perspective or a psychological perspective, but Enneagram and the things I do, not so much available. Mm. So that kind of made a way for me to, um, I teach with storytelling, and that's because I think people can't remember uh, all that's offered about nine other ways of seeing the world if it's not tethered to something. Especially people who don't intend to be Enneagram professionals in any way. So um I've been teaching for twenty eight or years or so. Uh more, maybe, maybe thirty now. And um it ended up being um a big part of my vocation, but I didn't expect that when I first learned it. Mm. In terms of what the Enneagram is for people who don't understand that, um Let me say that my motivation was that regardless of what I was going to do with my teaching, I wanted it to add compassion to the world. Uh, Things seemed to be um, losing elasticity when I started to learn the Enneagram. And people were more polarized than they had been. And that doesn't compare in any way to where we are now. And um, it seemed to me that if people could understand that we actually see the world in nine different ways. And within the way of the nine that we see the world and take in and process information, there's a lot of differentiation there, too. And each is valid. And you can't change any of them. You can't just be another Enneagram type. You are the number that you are always. And um, that felt to me like what I've learned to talk about in terms of the Enneagram is that it it shows you what's wrong and it tells you how to fix it at exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. And so what differentiates the Enneagram from other things that might be considered to be the same, like Myers-Briggs or DISC or all, all of them that you could name. And I think they're all great. I don't have a, I don't have anything to say that's negative about them. But, you know, I'm an ENFJ on the Myers-Briggs. I don't have any idea what to do with that. Mm. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm I'm for sure always going to be an extrovert. Mm. And when I try to be an introvert, I'm just an inappropriate extrovert. (laughs) Like, uh, I just, there are things you can't change, right?
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: So, if you accept the Enneagram premise that you can't change how you see, but you can change what you do with how you see. Then that gives you a a way to understand yourself. You know, you know that it's your Enneagram number when it makes you uncomfortable to hear about it. Sniper. Like if you're not a little squirmy, it's not your number. <laughs> Unless you're an eight, you know, they like their number <laughs> of lot and they're not squirming and they should be.
2: Yes, yes.
1: So, um, what if we could uh, make room for nine different ways of seeing what's happening? Then how broad would our reach be of compassion and understanding? And when I'm asked to teach a beginning Enneagram workshop, I call it Know Your Number. Mm. It takes about eight hours. And um, I guarantee people at the beginning of the day that I I say, you know, I'm pretty good at what I do. So when you leave, you'll probably know your number. But I guarantee you'll be more compassionate. Mm. And that proves to be true.
2: Wow.
0: So I I, I have like nine thousand questions that are popping around in my brain, but I, I just want to sit with um with this one that seems to be really important to me at the moment, and hopefully just for pastors too. Why do you frame that around compassion? Like, why was this whole thing framed around compassion for you?
1: Well, the reason I started talking to you about the safe container that I grew up in is because I grew up around people who. Um, well, let me, I'll, I'll tell you a story. That's the way I teach best. When I was about 13, uh, my mother had the same group of friends. My parents had the same group of friends. You know, in a town of, of uh, 4,000 people, you you make friends within your generation generally, and there's nothing to do there in the 50s and 60s. The movie you could go to on the weekend. So they were all with one another playing cards or doing what they did. Right. That, that, that was entertainment. And, um, farmers are quiet, but they're compassionate and quiet. And, um, one day I said to my mother, uh, you know, this woman, uh, she gossips all the time. I'm so surprised that you're friends with somebody like her because she's just a gossip. And my mom said, well, you know, Susanna, I'm planning on staying here till I die. I could, I could live here a long, long time. And my mom lived to be 92,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, she said I could, I could live here a long time. And if I start eliminating people from my life who do something that I don't like, I'm going to be pretty lonely when I'm old. Mm-hmm. So here's what I can tell you: I think she gossips because she's lonely. This is what my mother said. I think she gossips because she's lonely and it feels intimate to her. That's compassion. Mm. And that's the container I grew up in. And it's like, we're all stuck here together. So we better just figure out how we can each bring our gifts to the table. Mm. And they did that figuratively and literally. Every, each one of these couples that all became friends in the 1930s, had their thing that they cooked. So my dad was a fly fisherman. So when my mom and dad had everybody over for dinner, they had trout from Colorado that my dad caught. But the guy who raised cattle, we had steak. And we had a, a, the people who owned the movie theater, he loved to make rabbit stew. And he did that. And the Stovall's made homemade sausage. And Uh, one we had mountain oysters at one family's house (laughs) and the reality is that that that's what they brought Mm. to the community literally and figuratively was this is how i'm different and isn't it delicious Mm.
2: wow
0: well so i am also a fly fisherman so and people are going to start getting crazy because I'm gonna want to talk about that for the rest of time, but I will I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the pause button on that and maybe we could chat afterwards. <laughs> but I think that there's something so beautiful, even from a heart of a pastor, to be able to look out into your congregation and your like people and like even just recognize the room for compassion and just the gift that each person brings to the table. Oh man, thank you for sharing that story. Um yeah. so encouraging.
1: now here's the downside. You know, if you're going to look at the congregation that way, then you're going to understand that you can never preach a sermon that will please all nine types. No such thing. There is no such thing. And that means that you can never trust the person that comes out and tells you it was great Mm. because you can't trust the person who comes out and tells you that you missed the mark and that it didn't have any meaning for them. Mm. Because it's all about how they hear
0: Oh I, man, we could sit with that for a while. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a big sigh of relief, sort of happening, and also like a ooh, that actually stings at the same time.
1: Yeah, you know, my husband's a pretty good preacher uh, by everyone's account, not just mine. Hmm. And he he likes it that he's a good preacher. And years ago, a lot of years ago, he was kind of into getting the strokes he was getting for his preaching and. I happened to be behind a woman one Sunday who was leaving church, who stopped and said to Joe, your sermon today was so great. It's one of the best I've heard you preach. I I, I just am so grateful for it. Except Joe didn't preach that Sunday. (laughs) And I said to him, she says that to whoever's at the door every Sunday. It has nothing to do with preaching. That's just her line.
2: (laughs)
0: Mm.
1: So y'all need to preach the gospel and let it fall where it does.
0: Yes. Amen. All right. So you, first of all, your work has been so helpful personally. um, I'm in the process of, of uh, spiritual direction certification through a crew, um, Sustainable Faith. And uh, we've had a chance to, to, to look at quite a bit of your work, which has been such a gift. Um, but to my family, to my church, when I do premarital counseling, uh, we, we hand them Road Back to You, which, which you co-authored with Ian. Um, and I've loved just how it has brought about such great discussions and great ways for people to begin to process their own stuff uh, and also have a vision for transformation and healing um, that just seems to come in countless ways. So tell us a bit about your brand new book, The Journey Towards Wholeness.
1: Um, okay. Uh, the the road back to you is the primer. It's like, here's how you know your number. The Path Between Us, which is the second book, is to answer the first question that people ask once they know their number. And then that is, how do I use this in relationships?
2: Mm.
1: But The Journey uh, Toward Wholeness is how do I... Use this in my relationship with myself and my relationship with God. What difference does the Enneagram make on this journey that I'm on toward trying to be a a more whole and more holy human being? And the short answer is um, balance and appropriately using the moves on the Enneagram. So. Um, I don't know if you know this, but um, nothing was really published about the Enneagram till the 1970s. Prior to that, it was all just, you know, in diaries and notes and teaching notes from people all over the world, actually, and from every faith belief. And um, I think that those of us who have been teaching the Enneagram for a long time worried that this time would come. Trendy Enneagram.
2: <laughs> yeah
1: because it's so much more than that. The Enneagram is spiritual and it's ancient spiritual wisdom and it needs to be treated as such. And in that reality, then I know that I'm created the way that I am, that my my worldview is that God is all benevolent, all grace-filled and all loving and that Whatever happens in my relationship with God, there's nothing I can do to get God to love me any less and nothing I can do to get God to love me any anymore. So how then can I be more aware of God's love for me and more aware of how I can live fully into that love by becoming who I am, essentially, instead of always leaning into my personality? So. Um, <clears throat> In the, I don't know, maybe in the 1940s and 50s, 40s, Gurdjieff is the modern grandfather of the Enneagram, and he started using it uh, in a spiritual formation school that he had, essentially. And at the same time, there was a guy named Maurice Nicole, who was English, and he wasn't doing Enneagram work, but he was doing spiritual work. And he said you know, um, we all have only three centers of intelligence and they are thinking, feeling, and doing. And they each should be used for their intended purpose. Well, if you take that teaching of his and you lay it on top of the Enneagram, then what you end up with is that there are three numbers that are thinking dominant and they're all right beside each other in five, six, seven. Eights, nines, and ones are doing dominant, and twos, threes, and fours are feeling dominant. So that's great. And then a woman named Karen Horneye, who was German American, came along and she said, you know, all people either first move toward other people, away from other people, or against other people. So if you put her work on Maurice Nicole's work on top of the Enneagram, then in each one of those triads. You had one number that moved toward, one number that moved away from, and one number that moved again. When things line up like that, then you know they're true. Mm. So I don't try to prove the Enneagram to anybody. If anybody argues with me about the Enneagram, I say it's just true. That's all I've got. If it (laughs) doesn't work for you, that's okay. I don't need it to. Yeah. Right? So, okay, then if we know that and we know that we have these three centers of intelligence, which are like our, uh, natural resources how does the other two centers work if one is dominant Hmm. i think unsung heroes of the hero of the enneagram world are hurley and donson and they wrote a book and said you know what one of these is repressed now that was already language that was in enneagram uh literature but not the way they put it in the literature And they kind of said, you know, you better figure out how to bring up this one that's repressed, because if you don't, you're always going to be out of balance. Mm. That's their work. Here's my work. I think the stress move in the Enneagram is very important. So if you look at the diagram of an Enneagram that is the right one that's used primarily, and you follow the arrow that goes from your number to another, if you follow the arrow, it shows you the number that you go to and stress, go to is not great language, that you can draw from when you're stressed. If you go against the arrow, it's the number that you can draw from when you're secure. The assumption that was made by Enneagram teachers and persons is that when you're stressed, you go to the unhealthy side of that number. Mm-hmm. And when you're uh, healthy or secure, you go to the healthy side of that number. That's not true. Mm. It's easily possible for you to learn when stressed to draw from the high side of your stress number, mm. from the healthy part. And it's just as easily possible for you to draw behavior and energy from the low side or the unhealthy side of your security number when you're feeling secure. Nobody has talked about that in published literature except me. So that's a new piece in this book. And, you know, I got to the table after Richard Rohr and Rizzo and Hudson and Helen Palmer. And those are my heroes and my teachers. And I waited a long time to make sure that I was right before I thought, I think I'm going to add this. And I'm 71. I've been doing this for a long time and it was time. Mm. And I know I'm right.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: We'll take it at that then. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think you... Recognizing how, in that, in that, th- those moves, right? Whether it's moving against or moving with, or and and not just having it as you know, well, this is the evil side of me, or this is the right. I think that that really opens up uh, a lot more language for compassion, uh, a lot more language for grace. Uh, how do you see that? Like, because uh, you mentioned earlier about about uh, Catholicism kind of created this there was like this mystical aspect within life that really like, that just resonated deep within you and your husband. How did, how did those two things sort of play out and play together in the writing of this book?
1: Well, mysticism uh, uh, requires allowing you. You have to allow yourself to be open to what God's doing. We early in the years when father Rohr was our spiritual director, I Showed up, you know. It's kind of hard to go to spiritual direction with Richard Rohr and Joseph Beale, who was a Vincentian till he was forty. Like it's tricky, and I, I was kind of all, you know, prayed up and ready to go. And I leaned up, and I said, you know, Richard, I'm just not sure what God's doing right now in my life. And I thought, but, you know, I'm, I'm ready for this. And Richard leaned up and said, well, you know, Suzanne, what God's doing is really none of your business. And I said. I recovered pretty fast. I said, oh, oh, no, no, no. I, I'm just talking about my life. I'm not, I'm not talking about the world. Mm. It's my life. And Richard said, well, that's not your business either.
2: Mm.
1: And I think we have to allow ourselves to be compassionate. I think we have to allow ourselves to believe that God would do a mystical thing in our lives. I think we have to allow room for God to be uh, bigger than whatever we have named God to be. And we have to allow personality to fall away in order to achieve transformation and wholeness. And personality, you know, you put on your personality to make it, to make it, to grow up. You got to have it. And you got to learn that you don't just get to be the raw you all the time. It won't work. But you have to know when to take it off, too. I have a, I had an accident. I've been moving furniture for years, and all, all the kids and Joe told me to stop, but I just wanted to move the sofa off the light plug, the light cord, so I could move the lamp. And I have a, a torn distal bicep tendon.
2: Ooh.
1: It's very painful and Mm -hmm. very complicated. So nobody else can see me, I realize right now, but you can. So you see, I have this brace on my arm. Mm -hmm. Well, I like it a lot. It makes me feel safer, and it keeps me from doing things that hurt my arm. Mm -hmm. And if I don't take it off, I'm never going to regain full use of this arm. And your personality is the same way. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to take it off, and so Joe, uh, I allow Joe to say, "Ah, I think we've passed the number of nights they said you need to sleep in it. Let's see what happens tonight." Allow me to take it off. So, what I'm trying to do in this book is say, if if you don't know al- if if you aren't willing to allow God. To be a reality in your life, even though it's a reality that you don't know how to talk about. If you aren't willing to allow this protection that you put on to fall away, to get back to the essence of who you are, then you get to just keep being your personality. And if your response to me is, I got this far, my answer is, yep, wonder where you could go without it. Mm. And pastors cannot preach the gospel without messing with the personalities of the people in the pew. So um, Jesus, those I know you're theologians. So everybody take a deep breath because I'm not. <laughs> But Jesus goes to uh have dinner with at Lazarus' house with Mary and Martha there getting everything ready, right? And he and Lazarus have been friends, and Mary and Martha are excited that he's coming. And uh so Martha is cooking and she's cleaned and she's cooking and she's in the kitchen, it's hot, and she's jealous because Jesus and Mary are just in the family room chatting it up. And Martha gets to a point where she just gets so frustrated with it, she can't stand it. So she goes in and she says, hey, what what about me? I'm in there trying to get dinner ready and doing all this work, and y'all are just talking. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part. Mm -hmm. So here's what it took me. Joe's a lectionary preacher, so I get to hear that every three years. And on year nine, after I learned the Enneagram, I realized as a two, like Martha, that the fact that I think I'm serving God doesn't mean I'm serving God. Sometimes I'm just serving myself. Mm -hmm. So that uh, made it possible for me to allow a little bit of my personality to fall away and to ask a deeper, broader question of what is mine to do? So since that Sunday, the question that determines every day for me is what is mine to do. Then the only way I can get there is by answering what is not mine to do. And the only way I can get there is by looking at my 2 And the only way I can do anything about my 2 is by bringing up thinking because I'm feeling dominant and thinking repressed. Mm. And the only way I can bring up my thinking is by doing spiritual practices that tend toward that instead of spiritual practices that tend toward all the cuddly, mushy giving of my two-ness. And then I have to answer the question, what am I willing to give up for transformation? And essentially that just walked you through my new book. Dang.
0: That, that was beautiful. Um, so I, I, do, this, I don't want this to feel like a hard turn because I think it's really related but like, so, so many pastors are in that moment, right? Like we've been working and slaving at the stove and the stress levels beyond belief. I mean, you've seen the statistics. It's, it's crazy. People are tired. They're on the brink of burnout. They're already burned out. Um, and yet there seems to be this deep, deep longing for wholeness. And like, what encouragement would you have for pastors right now who are just saying, like, I am so tired. I'm so stressed. Like, I just, I long for the wholeness that I know only Jesus has to offer.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, either for good or for ill, uh, I'm honest. And Joe and I at 74 and 71 have looked at each other many times in the last, especially the last 18 months, I guess, and said, I'm glad we're at the end of our years of ministry
2: Mm.
1: because it's so hard right now. And I think one of the things that I have to speak into is that it was really hard before COVID because the country is so polarized and because politics have found attachment to... Spiritual journeys and denominational belief systems, and I—I uh, I don't believe there's been a harder time in ministry. And um, you know, we're in an itinerant system, sort of, um, and uh, we're appointed by the bishop. And there's very little difference in corporate America and the Methodist system of appointing pastors, honestly. And uh, so you're kind of scared to preach the gospel because you want to stay at the church you are because you have a child who's a senior in high school Mm. and an eighth grader, Mm. right? Or, 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 or. And if you preach the gospel, people get mad at you and yet that's what you were called to do and that's what the church asked you to do and now that people have been on line in their pajamas with coffee they like that but you can't be in community at home in your pajamas mm. and you can't see the pain or the joy on other people at home in your pajamas and you can't sing whether you have a beautiful voice or a not beautiful voice, the hymns that tether us to the stories that we can't remember. Hmm. Unless you're with other people and you can't share a common table unless you're with other people. And so I would say this I think regardless of your structure of appointment and regardless of whatever competitive system is between you and other pastors, you know, nobody understands what you're going through right now except other pastors. So you need to take all those barriers down and recognize that you're all in it together. And that you need to support one another in whatever ways you can. And that whatever grace and gift God gives you for some understanding you need to share it with others who maybe got a different piece of God's grace that God expects them to share with you and you better hold one another together until congregations figure themselves out
2: Mm. Mm.
1: and they will they will Mm. and so uh, here's a, a Here's something I learned at the feet of Richard Rohr. Um, Joe and I started reading, I don't know, you know, maybe two years before COVID, people started talking about liminality. Mm -hmm. I thought, we know that word. Uh, We know that. So uh, I started kind of thinking about liminality, and so did Joe, and started talking about it some. And then I thought, well, you know, I think I'm going to open my new book with the fact that we're in liminal space because... Technology is taking over and we can't keep up with that. And we're like, everything is so different. This is liminal space. I sold my book to IVP with an opening chapter on liminality before COVID. Wow. Yeah. So I, I, for a few days I was saying, you know, Joe, I think I might be a prophet. Joe said, you know, they kill prophets. (laughs) I said, oh oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to be that. So um, I thought, how long have we known about liminality? Went back through my old journals. 19 years ago, Mm. 19 years ago, Richard Rohr said these words. Liminal space is when you're betwixt and between. God always tries to push God's people into liminality because it's the most teachable space. And then he sat there for a minute And then he said, No, no, I I think maybe it's the only teachable space. So, what if pastors were getting together and saying, Okay, what are we learning? And how can we ask our people to ask themselves what they're learning? And how can we use this time? of learning to make the changes we need to make. You you know, another trendy word right now, along with Enneagram is deconstruction. Oh yeah. Right. Well, I'm making hay while the sun shines with the Enneagram and y'all should be with deconstruction.
2: Mm.
1: Right. Use it. Mm. And then offer us a safe way to deconstruct and a path for reconstruction so that we can still be the church. It just may look different. Hmm.
0: Well, I think you might be a prophet Uh, (laughs) and I promise I won't kill you, but I feel like those words, uh, my prayer is that those words are like wind, uh, fresh wind in the sails and sails that have been slumped for a while. But that 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 word of just permission of learning, permission of leaning in together, permission of of yeah, the pastor's role. I mean, even looking at the prophets, right? Like I've been sitting in Jeremiah eighteen for the last few weeks, and um, <laughs> I'm just struck with the reality of you know this this pot that we constructed. It got an air bubble or something in it. It had to get pressed back down but yeah. the, but the joy on the potter's the joy of the potters of the potter on the potter's wheel is one that yeah. I think we get to participate in and we don't do it alone we have Christ with us in us through us we have the power of the spirit uh, you know moving our hands in, in ways that we never thought would be able to move and we have the we we are creating with the with the creator of the universe we're co-creating with yeah. the creator of the universe and dang that gets me excited on a Wednesday afternoon and my hope is on a Monday morning, pastors are hooting and hollering. Um, Suzanne, it's been so good to be with you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. We've been asking our guests this season just to leave pastors with the benediction. And I, I, I would appreciate, uh, I would love to ask if you could do that for us as well.
1: I'd be happy to, uh, I, for those who are Enneagram wise, I think you will hear that, um, that there is a a peace that is particularly for you. Uh, It is my hope that God will use our time together to encourage all of us to desire more time together and that we can each know that in God's eyes, I pray that you will know that you are good I pray that you will know that you are wanted. I pray that you will know that you are loved for yourself and not for what you do. I pray that you will know that you are seen for who you are. I pray that you will never believe or feel like your needs are a problem. I pray that in the midst of all that's happening, you'll know that you are safe. You will know that you will be cared for. You will know that you will not be betrayed. And I pray that you will know that your presence matters. As we move away from this time together, may our hearts be open to the outrageous things that. God might ask us to do, trusting that we're never alone and learning that we can rely on one another in the fullness of all that is the Holy One. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Monday Morning Pastor podcast today. Could you do us two favors? Number one, would you leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods? If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you could help us to spread the word. And number two, would you share this episode with two other pastors or leaders who you think would benefit from MMP? We would be deeply grateful if you could help us. Thanks in advance, and thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.